0: Much too late, oh, sooner or later comes down to I might as well be the told Hello again, everyone. This is Dr. Michael Walden. and you're listening to Ask the Blood Detective. Today's show topic. I call defeating diabetes. Now, you should listen to this show even if you don't have diabetes because something like three out of 10 of you out there will develop either diabetes and more of you will develop pre-diabetes. And don't let the name pre-diabetes fool you. Most of my patients think that because the word pre is in there or sometimes the doctors will say borderline diabetes, that they have this time they can leisurely take to correct the problem so they don't become diabetic when, you know, all hell breaks loose. Think about this. Think of your right, now spread your hands, your right hand as normal blood sugar and think as your left hand as diabetes, which is hyper blood sugar or high blood sugar. When your right hand starts to move towards your left hand, when normal blood sugar starts to become abnormal, the sugar is higher and higher and higher And it damages the nerves, it damages the arteries, it damages the kidneys and other uh, cells of the body. By the time it reaches your left hand where someone will officially diagnose you with diabetes, the damage is already done. So prediabetes is a silly term. It's a misnomer for sure. It confuses a lot of people and literally takes years off people's lives because they do not realize the significance of hyperglycemia. Or insulin resistance. So for those of you that are new to the show, as I mentioned, this is Ask the Blood Detective. My name is Dr. Michael Wall, the original blood detective. I practice in Westchester, New York, which is located about an hour north of New York City in a beautiful town called Katona. And I've been practicing for 30 years, providing clinical nutritional help as well as research uh, to hundreds of patients, if not thousands of patients over my career The purpose of this show, however, is for me to impart on you, if you don't already possess this knowledge already, blood detective knowledge. That means to discuss topics you've heard before, like diabetes, but in a way that allows you to truly take control rather than just collecting information. A lot of us do that. We collect knowledge, we do research, we think we know something, and we're not motivated to make actual changes. I think part of that has to do with how we understand our health or lack of health so i suppose the first thing you really need to know about diabetes or hyperglycemia is that you know when you're diagnosed in middle age where most people tend to be which just goes to show you how terrible medical uh, surveillance is to determine if people have diabetes earlier on but when you when you're diagnosed in middle age Diabetes will reduce your life expectancy by roughly 10 years. 10 years. Some of you, it will be a lot more than that. And some, it will be less. And worldwide, one person dies every seven seconds from diabetes-related causes. Let me say that again. Worldwide, one person dies every seven seconds from diabetes-related causes. Now, the number one cause of death in a diabetic is actually heart attack. So... It's not enough for you to read some book or listen to some show like, well, maybe like this, although this will be different for sure, where you might be told, okay, these are the supplements to take for diabetes. But what if you have diabetes and um, gluten intolerance? What if you have diabetes and you're on certain medications and someone else is on other medications? What if you have diabetes and you have different genetics than someone else? You know, so there's so many factors, and I've only just named a few of them, that must be considered to, to really beat diabetes, to really defeat diabetes. You have to know your unique needs as a diabetic. Or for those of you that are not diabetic or pre-diabetic, or just have a sense that your blood sugar is off, this is the time for you to take control. So let me talk very practically because that's what I'm going to do during the show. I'm going to talk about the testing for diabetes and hyperglycemia and what the conventional medications are for the condition. And I'll spend a lo- long time on the, the holistic interventions. I'll be talking about various herbs and nutrients that are not just important for diabetes, but they're impor- important for cardiovascular disease and they're important for inflammation and they're important for detoxification. Did you know that it's thought now, this is incredible to me, that diabetes may actually be caused more from air pollution than eating high glycemic foods. You know, we started out, meaning all of us, thinking that if you have a blood sugar problem like diabetes, high blood sugar, it must be because of sugar in the diet and it is partially for some people, especially once you've been diagnosed with pre-diabetes or diabetes. But many people can eat loads of sugar and they will never develop diabetes. So that talks about the genetic factors relative to how well that person might be taking care of themselves in other ways. I knew a person who was a Navy SEAL who exercised like a fiend, and he would eat sugar like it was coming out of his other ear, and uh, his blood chemistry was perfect. So that's not going to be the case for most people. But I, I give you this story just to let you know that everyone is an individual. We all know that. But when it comes to the blood detective way of thinking of your chemistry, we have to find out exactly what you need. So all of the different, um, natural remedies I'll be talking about, you know, they may apply to you. This is the disclaimer, everyone. The, the information I present might apply to you. It might not. But it is for your educational purposes and only educational purposes. I don't recommend that anyone try to treat diabetes naturally, certainly not by themselves. You need to have a trained healthcare provider who is trained specifically in nutrition and diabetes and who knows how to read laboratory work and who is trained to read laboratory work. I would not suggest you see a nutritionist or some sort of clinical nutritionist that has no Formal training and no license to check blood work. Not if you want to get the best out of the natural treatments. It's, you know, I see people who say, well, Dr. World, you know, I did what you just said. I saw nutritionists. I did just fine for a long time. I felt great. I'm like, you felt great. That's good. Now, tell me about your laboratory work. Did it change? Was your laboratory work checked on a regular basis to see if the natural interventions were working? And in fact, in this person's case, their diabetes was much worse, but for whatever reason, they felt okay. You know, our bodies do not always give us the right signs. They sometimes confuse the signs and symptoms. So that's why we want to look at the chemistry. We need to take detailed history intakes with you, for example. I would sit with you for a long time to go over your medical and health history and your goals. There's a lot of nutrition and medical and health information clues, blood detective clues that will come out of that conversation. And then you take that conversation along with questionnaires and various lab tests and then ultimately trial and error, trying certain things to see if they work. Not only they make you feel better, that's just not enough. We need proof. We need to see certain blood tests known as biomarkers of diabetes better. So let me give you the first one. The first one is called hemoglobin A1C, hemoglobin A1C. The the, uh, the hemoglobin A1C test has another name. It's called glycosylated hemoglobin. And glycosylation is sort of like a cooking process, like oxidation, inflammation. So glycosylation is when sugar sticks to protein. And the protein in the blood that sugar sticks to for the purpose of the hemoglobin A1C test is hemoglobin. So glycosylated hemoglobin is damaged hemoglobin from sugar. And that lasts between three and four weeks in the blood. So when the doctor says, I want a hemoglobin A1c test on you, that doctor is saying that they want a test that tells him or her three to four weeks average of your blood sugar. When this test is elevated above 7.5% in, in most laboratories, um, that's considered Borderline diabetes or diabetes. So the range of hemoglobin A1c is actually between 4.5 and 7.5. I misspoke for a moment, so let me clarify the hemoglobin A1c ranges. You might want to write these down because they're important because your doctors, they may not tell you. So basically, the hemoglobin A1c test, that three to four week average of your blood sugar as a diabetic test, Should be, the range is between 4 and 5.6%. That's normal. 4 to 5.6%. If you are 5.7% or higher, that means you're quote unquote, um, pre-diabetes. And many doctors don't pay much attention to this range, even though that's the range of greatest possibility to make a difference nutritionally. And if you have 6.5% or higher, you've got diabetes. So I like to have the hemoglobin A1C at 5.4%, because that's associated with excellent blood sugar control in an optimal range for many people. I probably would say almost all people, which is rare that I say that, but with this particular test, that's where most people should be, about 5.4%. If you're not there, you've got some work to do. So what should a person with blood sugar concerns do? Well, the first thing I believe is they should eat what's called a low glycemic, low diet. So a low glycemic, low diet, an example of that would be like the Mediterranean diet. Now, one thing I want to say about the glycemic diet is that it's not going to work for everyone. I had a patient who I was checking glucose on with a glucometer, one of those portable machines you can purchase in a pharmacy. And she had an atypical um, glyc, gly- I'm sorry, glucose response to beef. And when it came to pasta, she had a low glycemic response, just the opposite of what you would think. There's a lot of reasons that people react differently, but as a general guideline, you want to consider the glycemic index. And, um, the glycemic index should be put together with a total food plan that considers other aspects of your health. So if you have prediabetes or diabetes, and let's say we're the baseline of your diet is a glycemic diet. And again, you malabsorb. Well, you're, you're going to need foods that have nutrients that uh, are malabsorbed in you. Uh, and again, if you have inflammation, which you definitely do, we would want you to eliminate certain potentially inflammatory foods. And I would have to check which, which foods those are, or at least check you over digestively to make sure that you're properly digesting foods so they are tiny 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 particles so when they get into the gut and if some of them make their way into the bloodstream that they have less of a chance of evoking an inflammatory reaction because 100 percent of diabetes folks have leaky gut syndrome for those of you who do not know what leaky gut syndrome is the long and short of it is these cells that make up the lining of the small intestine they become leaky, they start to move apart. And molecularly, there are spaces, larger spaces created between those cells. When those cells are tightly packed, which is normal, that's called normal tight junctions. But when there's inflammation provoked by gluten, provoked provoked by sugar, uh, any allergic food, for example, and other factors, the leakiness develops of the small intestine and food particles make their way out to the bloodstream. They're not supposed to be there. Uh, The immune system sees them, it begins an autoimmune attack, and it's just bad news. In fact, with diabetics, uh, nearly, in my experience, over 30-something years of doing this work, uh, nearly 90% of diabetics have um, milk uh, and milk protein problems. So that's just an example of an allergy, so to speak, that is always a factor uh, in diabetics. So getting back to the low glycemic index, so what that index is, are their foods, it consists of foods that increase blood sugar very rapidly. And what you wanna do is to eliminate sugar itself, which is obviously a high glycemic food, white potatoes, most wheat flour products, and most cereals. So those those are just some of the things. And overall, someone with blood sugar issues that wants to fix them or diabetes needs to aim for about 40 grams a day of fiber. Start slowly with your fiber intake and then increase it or foods that have higher fiber. Load up on beans, vegetables. Yes. And even fruits. Uh, fruits are perfectly safe for diabetics. <clears throat> uh, although you could be different, but the fruit sugar is very different and all the other components of fruit as opposed to refined and processed sugar. And, you know, during your journey to defeat diabetes and prevent it, you want to keep the idea of what's known as volumetrics. On your mind, <laughs> yeah, volumetrics. Well, why, why introduce that complicated term? I'll tell you why. So the idea is to eat foods that have fewer calories than um, calories uh, per gram of serving. So soups, soups are an excellent uh, volumetric type of a food, which is relatively low calorie if you're mindful of how you make it, relative to the volume of fluid. Salads and foods cooked in water, like oatmeal, um, and having those in your daily diet will help take care of some of the volumetric issues, reducing your daily caloric intake. So these foods will make you, they'll fill you up without giving you lots of calories. And in general, as a general rule, you might choose unlimited amounts of certain grains, legumes, fruits, veggies, small amounts of non-fat condiments, uh, fat, fat-free uh, vegan cookies and crackers, um, and even coffee would be okay. A coffee doesn't damage diabetics, unless you're eating, you know, drinking a pot or more of it a day. That could be a problem. And you want to have plenty of uh, plant-based proteins. So generally, the amount of protein in the diet, at least, let me just start with postmenopausal women, should be about ten percent of calories. And most vegetables, legumes, grains contain this amount uh, or more easily uh, in the diet, as long as you have a variety of foods. I don't think that a person needs to go crazy with measuring uh, with these, let's say, phone apps, uh, the amount of calories per food because these are not very accurate. You just basically want to think plant-based and and then build it from there so it's unique for you. Uh, like I said, a plant-based diet on the top of an intake that's low glycemic is different. Um, there's, there's subtle differences in, in the food choices there that could make all of the difference for someone, for you. But as I mentioned, um, most legumes, vegetables, grains, that's good. And if you need more protein, which is really important for anyone, uh, you want to choose more beans and asparagus and mushrooms, broccoli, and a protein shake of some sort. Now, I want to explain a little bit more about proteins. I've mentioned before on Ask the Blood Detective, one of the very best tests It's actually considered the number one biomarker test that predicts lifespan and healthspan. Said more uh, technically, a body composition test that measures your lean body mass, the protein elements of your body, is the best measurement of disease risk and healthspan. And I say healthspan because that is a special term that, uh, that applies to Living longer during what's known as the non-disability stage of your life, the functional stage where you get to do things. And the way health is going for so many people, they have a very shortened health span. And then they have what are called disease clusters, disease clusters, um, not a caramel cluster, but a disease cluster from the caramel clusters. <laughs> what I mean is people are degenerating, they're getting diseases. They're living longer, technically, yes, but they have more diseases with a lower quality of life. So all the things I'm discussing here are generally good rules for most individuals. Okay, now, that body composition test I was just mentioning to you, it measures lean body mass and metabolic rate and the percentage of muscle, water, and fat on your body. That is the best test to calculate the proteins you need per gram of lean mass on your body you have to have a body composition test done if you are of the utmost seriousness to manage any disease body comp is a single best predictor of morbidity and mortality of anyone from anything so that is more accurate than any other measurement, even hemoglobin A1c, although hemoglobin A1c is a morbidity mortality marker too. The higher it is, the shorter your lifespan. So what I'm in the habit of doing is measuring several biomarkers on people, sometimes as many as 50 or even 70, because the more of them you have pointing in the right direction, not only is the, is the length of life usually increased, but the length of your living in the non-disability stage of life is almost always increased. So you've got to get the protein right. If the protein is deficient, your lean mass on your body will be deficient. If I know your metabolic rate and your your lean mass on your body, I can tell you how much protein you need. If I know that, I can also estimate the amount of carbohydrates, healthy carbohydrates, and healthy fats that you need. So protein, I cannot emphasize more. And you've got to get it right. A lot of you out there, particularly if you're over age 50, malabsorb, which means you don't absorb normally. If you're not absorbing normally and you're trying to count your calories, well, good luck. That's why it doesn't ever work. So the thing though is I always check patients for their absorption or malabsorption because how can I possibly give anyone any dietary or nutritional supplement information if they're malabsorbing? So I have to know that. I have to know how much they're malabsorbing. If they're malabsorbing 30%, Like think about it, if you malabsorb 30% of what you're intaking, I need to make sure your nutritional supplements and your diet is compensating, not to mention I have to focus nutrition on fixing that problem. And malabsorption is a, uh, I would say, I see it 99% of the time in diabetics and 98% of the time in pretty much anyone else over age 50. So let's get down to practicalities for a second. Before I do, I want to welcome everyone who's listening to the show today. Uh, those of you who have been continuing to listen, I'm getting your phone calls such sweet and wonderful and informative and intelligent emails. Uh, I really, I can't thank you enough. Uh, and also knowing that this information is uh, useful uh, and it's uh, on topics that you want to hear. Uh, nothing makes me happier than that. For those of you who want to get me show topics, or if you want to see me as a patient, either at a distance or face-to-face, you can call me at 914-552-1442, 914-552-1442, and email me at info at blooddetective.com. And you can go to my website, go to the blog section, the video section. You can search the website on any page for tons of free materials. I I have literally books up on the website for free and the website is drmichaelwald.com no spaces in between no dot after doctor so it's just writing the word drmichaelwald.com okay so what would like a typical breakfast look like for a diabetic well it might have a hot cereal like oatmeal gluten-free oatmeal with cinnamon we know that cinnamon helps blood sugar in and of itself it's not going to do anything uh, in, in oatmeal you, you need to take it in supplemental form and we're going to talk about supplements in a second you know, raisins, uh, even applesauce, or an all bran or muesli with nonfat, let's say, soy milk or almond milk or, or rice milk uh, and berries and uh, peaches or bananas. Um, you know, bananas are on the higher end of the glycemic scale, but when they're mixed with oats, for example, they're they're considered low glycemic. So some of you might be listening to some of this and saying, well, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Well, these are things that I've put a lot of thought to over the course of three decades, but they do and can change from person to person. I'll give you one more example of a few things for breakfast. Um, pumpernickel or rye toast, you know, you can top it with jam, uh, the healthier butters that are fortified with olive oil and uh oven roasted sweet potato you know, i love sweet potatoes for breakfast who would have thought and um you know you can have sweet potato home fries which are baked um you can saute that and saute mushrooms with peppers and onions you can do a tofu scrambler and for lunch it might be a a garden salad with lemon juice um, fat-free dressing or soy or teriyaki sauce um, legumes based like a legume based salad that's delicious Three beans, chickpeas, lentils, or black beans, and, um, and corn salad, obviously GMO-free. I'll give you a few more examples. Soups like carrot ginger mixed with vegetables, black beans, vegetarian chili, spinach, lentils, minestrone, split pea. So... The list goes on and on. So I figure out foods for people based on, as I mentioned earlier, their blood testing, their health history, medications that they're on, their food preferences, their malabsorption issues. How much do they need? When should they eat the food? Well, I'll do a body composition test. That tells me a lot about the metabolic rate. And then there's a trial and error of doing certain things based upon all, all those things I mentioned, plus other factors to get the, this correct. I mean, listen, let's all get down to earth for a second. There's no way... That at least it shouldn't happen this way. That you're given some diet on a piece of paper for diabetes, and that's going to work for you. I mean, it might, um, but this is a complicated condition, and some trial and error with food choices and seeing what that does to your chemistry is the is the best way to move forward. And and with this condition, this disease, unless you want to face the traditional medical therapies that are um, offered, uh, you really want to prevent as much as possible. All right, let's segue for a moment. Uh, to the conventional medical treatments for diabetes Well, if you're lucky uh, Your endocrinologist, your internist Might refer you to a dietitian. But uh, with all due respect to dietitians, If they're traditionally trained And I don't care where you got your training I don't care if it's Columbia University Or the University of Bridgeport It doesn't matter uh, Diabetic training is extremely limited And it's based on governmental uh, Old information, food guidelines um, So unless you're a dietitian. Or unless you visit, I mean, with a dietitian who has extra training and, you know, food allergies and malabsorption and the testing and all these things, you're going to cut yourself very, very short in terms of the health potential. Now, I can also say this because I am a dietitian. So I went through that education. I also attended the University of Bridgeport and got my master's in human nutrition. But those sorts of things didn't bring me to the level I am today that came with actual practice. So getting my certified nutrition specialist degree or certification by New York State. Uh, there's two nutrition certifications, by the way, folks, uh, for New York State, dietitian license, registered dietitian, and certified nutrition specialist, those three. And um, anything other than those are not recognized because they may not have the rigor of education. But even though those three um, designations that I just described are governmental, I'm letting you know in my my humble opinion that they're inadequate, so it was a lot of trial and error, a lot of learning on my own, uh, even chiropractic school, which is loaded with nutrition, um, that did help at least that was more holistic nutrition as well and when I attended medical school, the nutrition was literally almost identical to what was taught you know even in the 1950s and sixties so it's it's amazing how far behind um, the medical establishment is so some of you come to me and you're very upset about that, uh, upset with your medical doctors wondering why they don't understand this and why they don't understand that. You know, that's like you being – I'm just making this up, folks. If you're a Democrat and you're trying to convert a Republican and you're wondering, you know, you're saying all the right stuff or vice versa, by the way, and you're saying all the right things, but they're just not getting it. Well, that's pretty easy to understand, right? The different philosophies, and there may also be a lack of exposure to the same information or other exposures that go into forming um, opinions about things. So not to overly complicate what I'm trying to say here, medical physicians don't get nutrition training, really. So for a patient to be upset with a doctor for not being on board with their holistic nutrition or any nutrition is a little silly. Some people, when I say that to them, they uh, they drop the attention that they've been carrying around with them for years. So, you know, it's like expecting a a table to be anything other than a table. You know, you can wish it all you want. That's what it is. So your doctor is not likely going to convert. It can happen, but it rarely does. So back to conventional treatment. So metformin is considered the first line drug uh, for type two diabetes. It's also been shown to promote weight loss and even to protect against some cancers, cardiovascular disease, even Alzheimer's disease. So in some people, this is a medication that actually might have some benefit, but not without the proper nutritional balance. So if I have a patient who's a really bad diabetic, that hemoglobin A1C is super high. Sometimes you just have to use something like, like metformin or one of the other medications I'm, I'm gonna mention. I've had other patients who completely refuse that. They will not take medications, but I have been um, successful managing those patients without medication. If someone is on medication, my approach is to first fix all the things I think need to be fixed for that person and then to slowly take them off their medication as we're adding nutrition uh, with the help and permission of the prescribing doctor, okay, of whoever prescribed the metformin. And there's also uh, acarbose. So acarbose is a drug that lowers glucose by breaking down starches and slowing their absorption. And there are natural forms of um, acarbose-like molecules in uh, white beans. And then there are other glucose-lowering agents or injectables like insulin. Everyone's heard of that, which um, may be necessary depending on the individual's uh, glycemic control and the severity of their diabetes. Okay, let's talk about some of the nutritional supplements that you want to consider for diabetics and for pre-diabetics. The doses I can't give you because you'd either follow the doses based on the the bottles or containers themselves, or uh, what we would do is do a body composition to figure out what your your dose is appropriate to your your, uh, body composition. Your lean body mass really is what should determine uh, doses or one of the major factors to determine doses of supplementation. Most people, again, follow the, the labels, the directions, and sometimes that works. Most of the time it won't because the the individuals who put together these um, uh, products, they don't know you. They don't know your chemistry. They don't know your situation. So at at the, le- at the very least, they're just basing the dose loosely on the nutrition literature, the medical literature, or not much at all. So it, it really goes uh, to the healthcare provider, the um clinical nutritionist or preferably the doctor of nutrition to figure this out. So uh, white mulberry leaf, that's a component of white mulberry and it slows carbohydrate absorption and may lessen what's known as postprandial hyperglycemia. So when you eat a food, blood sugar goes up and it can really skyrocket in someone who doesn't have proper control of blood sugar. But consuming the white mulberry leaf uh, helps Uh, to mitigate or lessen the spike, which during the spike is when damage occurs. Another important nutrient is brown seaweed. So brown seaweed uh, was demonstrated in a randomized controlled trial that the extract caused a 48.3% decrease in post-meal blood sugar spikes. That's a really significant reduction in post-meal insulin concentrations and improved insulin sensitivity. All of those things were shown just with brown seaweed. And then there's cinnamon, which is a common one that you'll hear about uh, for use in diabetics or or blood sugar issues. So studies that supplemented uh, type two diabetics and healthy people with cinnamon reported lower levels, again, of fasting glucose, lower levels of hemoglobin A1C. And by the way, the fasting glucose is the test that your doctor does regularly when they check your glucose. So that's just your glucose in the in that moment. And the hemoglobin A1C we said is two to four weeks, uh, maybe a little longer, maybe a little shorter, blood sugar average. And the cinnamon lowered the fasting glucose, the hemoglobin A1C, and also improved after meal glucose and insulin concentrations. And it improved insulin sensitivity. All of these are different aspects of what needs to get done to effectively manage diabetes, to prevent diabetes, hyperglycemia, the pre-diabetic stage, all of it. So, and what's interesting about cinnamon is that the improvements in glucose, hemoglobin A1C, insulin levels, insulin sensitivity, those effects were demonstrated even in people that were already taking glucose medication. So, you know, how you fix the glucose kind of matters as well. Using natural substances are just well, they're really the way to go unless for some reason it doesn't work for you. And then there's sorghum bran. So sorghum bran in a randomized trial in healthy men, they use muffins made from uh, sorghum and they were shown to reduce average after meal glucose. That's the postprandial glucose and improved insulin sensitivity. And then there's something known as uh, benfotamine or benfotamine. So benfotamine in a clinical trial with uh, type 2 diabetics, they were fed a high, what's known as advanced glycation end product meal. That means a hyperglycemic meal, a high on the glycemic index, before and after a three-day course of consuming benfotamine. Now the subjects, the participants' vascular function, that's their blood vessel function, uh, were assessed um, after both the high uh, advanced glycation end product meals. So the benfotamine administration reduced vascular dysfunction, reduced inflammation in the blood vessels, made them less hard, made them more flexible. That's pretty incredible because none of that happens with metformin. But you're probably wondering what is benfotamine? Okay, I'll tell you. So first of all, diabetics and uh, obesity often induce a relative thymine or vitamin B1 deficiency. And that B1 deficiency will contribute to some of the most damaging consequences of, hyper, of hyperglycemia. Now, benfotamine is a fat-soluble derivative of B1 or thymine, which is vitamin B1, which is a water-soluble nutrient. But benfotamine is the fat-soluble version, which is better because the fat-soluble version gets into the nerve or the nervous system and the cell membranes of tissues, which are made of fats. So benfotamine, again, is a fat-soluble derivative of vitamin B1, which is thymine, that has much greater bioavailability than all other forms of of, uh, thymine. And it's capable of reaching concentrations in the bloodstream several times that of orally administered thymine. Super important. Another essential nutrient for blood sugar balance is pyridoxal 5-phosphate. Pyridoxal 5-phosphate is uh, the long hand for P5P. And what pyridoxal 5-phosphate is, is the active form of vitamin B6. And it is a very effective, even on its own, anti-glycation agent, which means reducing glycosylation, which is that oxidative inflammatory damage that sugar inflicts upon the protein structures of the body. And the protein, and most of you is made of protein, meaning... You've got protein in your kidneys, proteins in your blood vessels, um, proteins in your cells. Uh, So this is an extremely needed nutrient and often absent from uh, the protocols that I see that my patients put themselves on before I let them know the importance of this. So there was a study where they treated 20 type 2 diabetics with only 35 milligrams of P5P, the active B6, along with three milligrams of active folic acid and activated folic acid is the methylated form. It's called methyl folate. And three milligrams is quite a lot of folate because it comes in micrograms. So 1,000 micrograms is one milligram. So three milligrams is a great dose and two milligrams of B12, which also should be in the methylated form, so methyl B12, and once again, Two milligrams is a lot of B12 because B12 is dispensed as micrograms and a thousand micrograms equals a milligram. So it's 2000 micrograms that we're saying to take here or said another way, two milligrams. And when you take that P5P with the three milligrams of activated folate and the two milligrams of activated B12, it improved the skin sensation in diabetics that was damaged by diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Here's another very important nutritional supplement, and I might use all of these together with a, with a person, um, or I might not use some of these at all because they might be contraindicated, in other words, not the best thing for another individual that has, let's say, prediabetes, diabetes, or other health problems. Um, okay, let me talk about hesperidin. Now, in a clinical trial where they took 25 diabetics, this phytonutrient also improved insulin resistance. And then there's something, then there's something known as gynastema or gynastema. So, gynostema in a trial of diabetics showed that the, this particular plant extract was added to the urea drug for diabetics known as glyclizide. And what happened was a reduction in the blood glucose And the reduction in the hemoglobin A1C. uh, And these reductions were nearly three times greater with the use of this herb than compared to placebo. And the genostema acted to increase insulin sensitivity rather than simulating insulin release. Which is, that's the way you want to do it. It also prevented weight gain and hypoglycemia. If you go too far in the opposite, low blood sugar range. Which commonly happens as a side effect of these sulfonylurea medications. So when we can use herbs that don't have the side effects, some of these potentially very bad side effects of these uh, blood sugar-lowering medications, then we should be doing it. But you don't want to do it on your own. You do want to work with, as I said, I can't emphasize this enough, with a person who really knows what they're doing in terms of drug-nutrition interactions. And then there's the old favorite green tea extract. So, green tea extract which is a major which has a major constituent in it known as uh, epigallocatechin 3 gallate uh, that's a that's a mouthful or abbreviated egcg so green tea extract has this active component egcg and it's been shown to reduce glucose and insulin levels and improve insulin sensitivity now these This might sound familiar to you. I keep saying lowering glucose, improving insulin sensitivity, uh, l- reducing insulin secretion, uh, lowering hemoglobin A one c with these different uh, nutritional compounds. Some of them lower blood sugar in in different ways, in other words, the background ways in which they manipulate biochemistry may be different, giving us the same additive effects so that 's why we need to use many different types of natural compounds to get the best effects, along with the proper diet and the proper exercise. And when I say the proper exercise, I don't just mean being busy throughout your day. I mean exercise based upon your body type, based upon your health issues, based upon your limitations that you might have, like arthritis, um, based upon your health concerns. The exercise is is as different as nutritional, as, as different diets are. I mean, that's really how variable diet is and the diabetic needs to be. If you focus just on foods and supplements without uh, working on exercise, then you are missing out. You might miss out so entirely that the dietary and supplement changes, they just don't work or they have a very limited effect. So in terms of green tea extract, they know that in at least an rodent model of accelerated aging, the EGCG Compound lowered glucose and insulin levels and increased insulin se- sensitivity. It also decreased fat accumulation. So green tea has the potential of doing that, which lowers cardiovascular disease. But by the way, all of these beneficial effects that I'm talking about that these herbs do, you know, regarding insulin and blood sugar, those are beneficial for practically every disease known to man and woman. So this is not about just about diabetic, di- diabetes or pre-diabetes. Not only will the EGCG decrease fat accumulation like fatty liver, uh, it improves markers of mitochondrial function. And mitochondrial function is fundamental for cellular function. So if anything improves mitochondrial function, that is a good thing. And in some animal studies of diabetes some animal models of diabetics, I should say, the green tea showed to protect against diabetic neuropathy. So green tea, uh, amazing you probably couldn't drink enough to get the minimum 200 milligrams of EGCG required. So you'd have to take a supplement. And then another important uh, herb for diabetics and prediabetes, and I take it and I don't have any of those conditions, is bilberry extract. So closely related to bilberry, or should, I should say, sorry, to blueberry is bilberry, which is rich in polyphenols and anthocyanidins, these are important phytonutrients that have special health effects uh, in the body. And they're in all fruits, but they're particularly concentrated in bilberry. And in a study of diabetic mice, a bilberry extract reduced blood sugar and enhanced insulin sensitivity by activating a certain, um, a certain compound that is critical for blood sugar regulation known as AMPK. So bilberry manages that. And then there's the old favorite, chromium, which uh, my, my old friend, Dr. Atkins, uh, had, had popularized and believed decades ago, decades and decades ago, that everyone should be on extra chromium, and I think that's true. Uh, chromium is a trace mineral, and it's essential for uh, both fat metabolism and carbohydrate metabolism. So if you're deficient or insufficient in chromium, you are not gonna manage fats and carbohydrates normally. And chromium is believed to act as an insulin sensitizing agent. That's what you want. Improving insulin, insulin's function by reducing insulin desensitization. So chromium deficiency has been associated with uh, insulin resistance and diabetes. And that's, again, super important to know. Just a two-second break. My name is Dr. Michael Wald. You're listening to Ask the Blood Detective. We're talking about defeating diabetes. We're now reviewing different nutritional supplements. If you have questions, concerns, and show topics, please send them to me. You can call me at 914-552-1442, or if you'd like to work with me as a patient, and you can email me at info at blooddetective.com. Go to my website. Check out all of the uh, free information there by searching on the search bar or going to the blog where uh, my radio shows are contained, at doctor drmichaelwald.com. That's, that's one word, no dots or anything other than the end.com. .com. Okay, drmichaelwald.com. And then uh, a few more words probably we should spend on cinnamon. So cinnamon, as most of you know, is a culinary spice. Uh, it's been shown to promote healthy blood sugar metabolism and improve insulin sensitivity. And we've known this about insulin probably for close to 20 years. Uh, studies that supplemented type 2 diabetics, which are the non-insulin-dependent diabetics, and healthy individuals with 1 to 3 grams, everyone, 1 to 3,000 milligrams reported lower levels of fasting glucose. So you can't just sprinkle cinnamon on expecting it to work. And if you think even if you take these amount of grams, it'll work for you as the only thing? Probably not. But that is a pretty strong dose, and that is uh, a, that was a good study. So I have seen that. Uh, but most people will need several things, as I mentioned. So one to six grams is quite a range, depending on the person. But based on the lean body mass, you can idealize the dose of this along with the dose of everything else in the diet. Again, the supplements you can think is like resting on top of the diet. They should supplement the diet and not replace the diet. Okay. Also, cinnamon at this dose, the one to six grams, uh, the hemoglobin A1C and after meal glucose and insulin... Uh, insulin's uh, concentrations, all all of it improved, along with insulin sensitivity improving, and these effects have been demonstrated even in those already taking glucose lowering medication. So, cinnamon, like some other uh, other nutrients here, are working even beyond what the medications are doing. So, we get that working in the body, and then we eventually can pull a person off uh, the the glucose. Um, Managing medications, if it's successful, but we don't do that suddenly, and we don't do that without communicating to well, c- communicating with that is, the prescribing doctor. Now, no conversation about diabetes and it's, and the number one cause of death in diabetics, heart disease, uh, which the whole scenario involves inflammation, um, is complete without a discussion of omega three fatty acids. So omega-3 fatty acids are considered healthy fats and they're found in fish and also in some nuts and seeds and veggies and algae. Um, in fact, the algae that salmon consume is what gives the omega-3 to the salmon. If the salmon didn't eat the algae, there would be no omega-3s in in uh, whatever fish you're talking about, particularly salmon, if they're not eating the algae. So diets rich in omega-3 fatty acids have been shown to promote weight loss, enhance insulin sensitivity, reduce death from cardiovascular disease. And it does that by reducing inflammation. Again, inflammation, inflammation. Uh, Also, omega-3s improve insulin. I'm sorry, improve lipid profiles, lowering the cholesterol, increasing the good HDL cholesterol, lowering the bad small particle LDL cholesterol and omega 3 omega 3s reduce death from cardiovascular disease um, substantially one of the ways it does that is by reducing the tendency for blood clotting so i do tests on patients blood that can give me an, an estimate of the viscosity of the blood or the thickness of the blood and thick blood is heavy and uh it has a hard time getting circulated so it stresses the heart uh, particularly the whole heart but also the left ventricle the main pumping chamber of the heart and um, when blood is thicker it doesn't permeate and perfuse into tissues all the tissues that get a circulation are not quite getting what they need from the blood nutrition uh, other elements even medication and nutrient doses so it's very very essential that for everyone particularly for pre-diabetics and diabetics that we look at your blood viscosity and fix that issue If we have a measurement and it says you have increased blood viscosity, also, by the way, I measure hardening of the arteries. I measure blockage too, but I'm talking about hardening right now. We want blood vessels to be more flexible and we want the blood itself to be less viscous or more fluid-like. So if I take baselines of these tests and give you these supplements and change your diet and your exercise and it's not working, at least we know that. And we can move on differently to adjust the protocol. And then there's magnesium. There are different types of magnesium. Um, the type of magnesium or types that I choose depend on the person. So if someone has ulcers, I might use a magnesium orotate. Um, if someone does not, and I'm using it with activated B6, I might use magnesium aspartate. So as you can see, these subtle differences matter for each person. Now let's talk about magnesium. Now, I just told you the importance of magnesium, but what you may not know is magnesium is involved in more than, fa- more than 500 different metabolic reactions in the body, and a good deal of those have to do with carbohydrate metabolism. So magnesium helps blood sugar balance by managing how the body breaks down carbohydrates, which ultimately break down into glucose. What you also need to know for blood sugar is that magnesium specifically participates in insulin secretion and function. So if you've got low magnesium levels or insufficient magnesium levels, which means not enough magnesium for you, that is going to result in insulin resistance. So magnesium is super important. I should mention that magnesium uh, is also released in magnesium-containing um salt baths so if you're in for at least an hour you'll have a measurably higher level of magnesium in your bloodstream very interesting the other thing to know is about coq10 coq10 or ubiquinone and i've said many times in prior shows that ubiquinone is called ubiquinone because it's ubiquitous in the in the body which means virtually every cell uh, requires and produces uh, coenzyme q10 or ubiquinone so CoQ10 is completely essential uh, in what's known as mitochondrial energy metabolism. So the mitochondria, you might remember from eighth grade science class. I remember actually sitting in eighth grade science class and learning about the mitochondria. And then I remember in seventh grade, we learned about it and in eighth and ninth grade and in, in uh, high school and in college. And I thought to myself, boy, this mitochondrial thing must really be important. And it is. So you have to have CoQ10 for the mitochondria to work properly because if not, if there's insufficient or deficient CoQ10, there'll be oxidative stress of the mitochondria. In other words, it's going to start to break down. And the other thing to know about CoQ10, it's been associated not having enough with diabetes, just straightforward. So most diabetics will have a coenzyme Q10 deficiency or insufficiency and a good number of people that are not diabetics do as well, which not only presupposes to diabetes, but also to cardiovascular disease, but all sorts of other problems. And then there's our favorite curcumin. So there was a nicely sized study, a randomized controlled trial uh, in 240 pre-diabetic subjects uh, and the curcumin supplementation was shown to significantly lower the risk of progression of uh, di- to diabetes. And on the other hand, over 60%, 16% of subjects in the control group of this study uh, were diagnosed with type 2 uh, diabetes. So we know that if you're lacking in cocu I'm sorry, lacking in curcumin, that's going to be a problem for you. If you take curcumin, uh, particularly in a more activated form, uh, you will make a dent in your hyperglycemia or your diabetic situation. So as many of you are thinking right now, what's the best curcumin to take? Well, first it's important to know that 85% of the curcumin that you just take as curcumin um, whether it's a spice or in a supplement, uh, it will be peed out. It'll be urinated out, 85%. There's very little bioavailability of curcumin, even in a particular healthy person. Now, you want to take curcumin that's complex with something called biopterine. Biopterine. So biopterine is spelled B-I-O-P-T-E-R-O-N-E. Actually, it's I-N-E, V-I-O-P-T-E-R-I-N-E. It's not easy to host a show and spell at the same time, (laughs) considering spelling was my weakest subject uh, when I was a young boy. In fact, to digress, I was such a bad speller. I remember in fourth grade, my teacher putting my, my test, my spelling test results up on the wall with all the other hundreds and 95s, simply because... I got pretty much a zero, but I sounded out the words perfectly. So she thought that deserves some credit. I never forgot that. <laughs> so back to curcumin, you want a complex with biopterine and you want to take about two to eight grams per day. Probably two grams is good because if you take that two grams with some of the other nutrients, you're gonna you're gonna make significant dents in blood sugar by correcting underlying mechanisms. Okay. The next thing would be, what do you think? All right. Resveratrol. I bet you didn't see that one coming. So, Resveratrol, that compound that is, uh, was most well known, I suppose, for being a part of the, of red wine and the French paradox and lowering of cardiovascular disease. By the way, everyone, the French paradox does not exist. It never existed. And the French do not have lower heart disease rates than those in the United States. So that's just all nonsense. But that doesn't mean resveratrol is not useful. So resveratrol is a polyphenol. That's a certain type of plant compound with a certain structure to it that's received lots of attention in the anti-aging community for a very, very long time. Particularly because it holds promise in type 2 type two or non-insulin dependent diabetics. There was a rigorous review of randomized controlled trials uh, that found resveratrol improved systolic blood pressure so it lowered the top number, which is what you want to do the hemoglobin a1 c was was also lowered the and creatinine um, was also affected now creatinine increases when the kidneys are damaged so if you lower the the creatinine level, you are showing that you're improving kidney function, which is commonly a cause of early death and demise and and severely impacts quality of life in diabetics because they end up on on dialysis, uh, which is absolutely miserable. Remember, the amount of these nutritional compounds that you'd wanna take would probably need to start with the doses on the bottles from the manufacturers. um, And then those doses should be modified based on lots of factors, remember? Uh, careful consultation between you and someone who knows what they're doing, healthcare provider, preferably one that knows how to read laboratory work and orders laboratory work, along with uh, questionnaires, and then trial and error with laboratory work to see what's changing. The next important, really important supplement, maybe one of the most important of all that I've mentioned. I would say it is. It's it's my number one pick for for diabetes or pre-diabetes is lipoic acid or alpha lipoic acid. So lipoic acid is part of the B vitamin family. And it's a free radical scavenger, which means it reduces the amount of damaging inflammatory free radicals that break down tissues. And what is so interesting about this is that Lipoic acid supports healthy blood glucose by activating that very important molecule I mentioned earlier, AMPT. So it, it uh, activates the AMPT, which increases insulin sensitivity, reducing insulin resistance. And lipoic acid does something that none of the other nutrients I've mentioned uh, do, or at least it's not been uh, studied yet is that it protects the pancreatic beta cells. The beta cells of the pancreas are the part of the pancreas, the cells of the pancreas that secrete insulin. And by doing that, lipoic acid increases glucose removal from the bloodstream. Uh, Lipoic acid has been used for the prevention and treatment of diabetic neuropathy in Germany for, for several decades. Let's talk about vitamin D here for a second. So I've said on my other blood detective shows that vitamin D is important for a myriad of health problems, both for prevention and treatment. They range from blood sugar issues to cardiovascular disease to autoimmune problems, you name it. The vitamin D can be associated with it. and The reason for that, well, one of the reasons is that every cell of the body has vitamin D receptors, which means they're built for vitamin D presence. So this is why so many different doctors in different areas of medicine are now finally uh, cued in about uh, vitamin D and its importance. What they're not too keen on is supplementing vitamin D properly. I've heard patients tell me, yes, I had my doctor do vitamin D. They did it. It was low. They didn't really know how to supplement me. They said, okay, take some vitamin D. Like The dose didn't matter. So that's obviously wrong. Uh, And then I've heard other patients say, well, my doctor said it's low. Take 1,000 or 5,000 or 10,000. If your vitamin D is actually clinically low, below 30 on a blood test, you're supposed to take anywhere between 50,000 and 100,000 units per week. If you're overweight by more than 10 pounds, then 100,000 units once a week is what you do for eight weeks. And then you have the blood level rechecked again, and then you you tailor the, the blood results to where you want it. Where do you want vitamin D levels? You want vitamin D to be at a 70. 70 is the magic number based upon multiple studies put together compared with one another to assess what is that magic number of vitamin D. And again, it is a 70. You know you take too much vitamin D if your calcium goes up, it'll cause hypercalcemia, or if your liver enzymes increase, one or more of them. And of course, if your vitamin D level is elevated in the blood. Technically speaking, if your vitamin D level is elevated in the blood, but your calcium and your liver enzymes are normal, you're you're not overdosed. But most doctors don't know that and they will simply take you off the vitamin D, which is what you should do if the calcium level is high and a liver enzyme is elevated because that indicates that you're starting to get into a bit of um, liver inflammation or hepatitis due to hypervitamin D-osis, they call that. But that's very rare. I haven't even seen it one time uh, that I can, maybe, maybe one time in the past 32 years and that was on someone taking cod liver oil which didn't have an exact amount of vitamin D, so they overdosed along with vitamin A. Those problems usually disappear when you take someone off the supplement and then you let all the blood tests go back to normal and then you start again at a lower dose until you get a level of a 70. The other thing that's critical to simply understand about vitamin D and blood sugar is that vitamin D deficiency has been associated not just with diabetes, but with obesity. And other evidence suggests that vitamin D status is very closely related to glucose metabolism. So the lower your glucose, the higher, I'm sorry, the lower your vitamin D, the lower your D, the higher your glucose usually. And people with vitamin D deficiency were much more likely in the first place to have diabetes. And that that was independent of their body weight. So if you're low in D, you, you are increased risk of diabetes. And of course, if you're, low in vitamin D, you might also be obese, but and that will adjust the dose. So I hope that this information was useful for you out there for the prevention and the treatment of blood sugar problems. There's so much more we can say, and you know my blood detective way where I look at someone's lab work and I say, a person needs what they need for their needs. So if you're a diabetic and your chemistry say that you need supplements and foods that are not part of what we discussed today, well, that's the way it goes. But these are general guidelines. My name is Dr. Michael Waltz. You can reach me at 914-552-1442 or email me at info at Visit my website at drmichaelwald.com. Thanks so much. See you guys soon.